Good morning. So aside from the when question, there are two other questions that I'm hearing more and more about these days. First, where do you think this is all going? And second, what do you think is really happening? The only way I can answer the where's it all going question is, I don't know. And be careful about trusting anyone who claims they know for sure. Because behind every answer, every confident answer, is an agenda. The only way to answer the what is really happening question is, I don't know. And if anyone tells you they do know for sure, don't buy it. Especially the conspiracy series, because behind every answer, there's an agenda. And yet the more I've been asked those questions, where is this all going? And what is really happening? And after every vague and cautionary non-answer, I have felt this sense of maybe a little guilt, because that's not totally accurate. I've also had a growing sense of trepidation that God might want us to talk about the answer. But increasingly, I've also had this welling sense of conviction that we need to talk about what we do know, because what I sense is really behind those two questions deep in our hearts. What we're really looking for is a sense of hope. And the answers that are being shouted across the airwaves and pushed across digital platforms so often use personal agendas to pray on our need for a sense of hope and get us to believe perspectives that are so dubious, potential solutions that are so tenuous, and options, opinions that are, that are so con contradictory that it's leaving us more confused than confident. And we find ourselves in grave danger of allowing ourselves to be taken hostage by agendas and perspectives that give us a little sliver of hope, but in the end will fail to deliver. Or there will be no hope at all, and many of us realize that and are afraid of it and just don't know what to do or how to think about it. And so for the next several months, we will be looking into the one book of the Bible that speaks very directly to those two questions. What is really happening? And where is it all going? It's the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation, the, the purpose in the way God chooses to end his written word, what he wants us to know about our history and our destiny, is to, is to help us to become hostaged by hope. Does hope, true hope, realistic and real hope, have you captive? Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it, to be, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it, because the time is near. What does God want us to know and to feel from this revelation? He wants us to, to be blessed 
Not frightened and despairing, blessed. Not confused and disoriented, blessed. With a sense of hope. Blessed is the one who reads and blessed are those who hear and take heart to what is written in it. And how does this hope come? Well, it's, it's all about the first phrase. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The translation you are using might say the revelation from Jesus Christ. That's not a wrong translation. It's just probably a little too narrow. The word from or of in our English Bibles is not really a separate word in the language in which the New Testament was written. It's a, it's a suffix at the end of the word Jesus that is somewhat generic. It could mean that this revelation comes from Jesus Christ, or it could mean that this revelation is about Jesus Christ. I think it actually means both. It is from Jesus, but it is also all about Jesus. This book is structured around seven pictures, seven grand visions of Jesus Christ. And so the very thing we need to see, the one thing that we need to know what we will see in every chapter of this book is that if we want to be captured and hostaged by true hope, is that hope has a name. It's Jesus. I don't know what you think about when you think about hope, but my hunch is that for many of us, the word we think about is optimism, right? Hope, true hope. The hope that is in Jesus is, is something that is more than optimism. There was an article uh, this last week in the Atlantic magazine with a subtitle that caught my attention. Why Americans didn't see this pandemic coming. That caught me. It talked about the wishful thinking that allows humans to ignore something that we can't comprehend. How our brains are wired to basically use optimism as a coping mechanism. The title of the article was humans are too optimistic to comp comprehend the coronavirus. We are wired to want someone to say, don't worry, it'll all just work out fine. Folks, hope in Jesus is way more powerful than simply being an optimist and not a pessimist. The hope that is more robust than optimism that chases out negativism, including the negativism of conspiracy, conspiracy theories we are so susceptible to, is all about what we see in Jesus and because of Jesus. Forty times in this book of the Revelation, John says, I saw, not just I speculated, not just I dreamed, I saw. And what he saw, he remembered. As I read what John saw, I try to imagine how powerful it would have been to see those visions and, and have them burn into our minds, to see them and to, and to feel them and to hear the thunder and the roaring. Nineteen times, John tells us to look and also listen. I've been greatly helped as I read through Revelation and study Revelation by a book by Daryl Johnson called Discipleship on the Edge. And in this book, he says, the primary exhortation of Revelation is not trust and obey, but listen 
And look, especially look. John is telling us we are having a hard time trusting and obeying Jesus Christ because we are not listening and we're looking. Correction, he says, we are listening and looking. It is just that we are not listening and looking at what John sees and what John hears. In this introduction, we see three big picture ways, three overarching ways that we will see when we come to know that hope's name is Jesus. Number one, because hope has a name, I can see and I can live in a bigger reality. To see that, we need to see John's earthly reality as he receives the content of this book. John, one of the core three of Jesus' followers to whom the to whom Jesus gave the mantle of, of leadership of his movement after he was gone, is now alone. The year is A.D. 96. It is 63 years since Jesus died in A.D. 33. John, one of the core leaders of this movement, now in his mid-80s, is alone, exiled, banished to Patmos, a barren, desolate island in the Aegean Sea, off the coast of what is now Turkey. It was it was a prison island with, with rock quarries to which the Roman government sent troublemakers and criminals. It was, a, it was a huge work camp. John has been there now for several years, and although his physical strength is waning, his emotional and spiritual vitality is as strong as ever. The biggest weight on John's heart is those people that he had helped discover faith in Jesus and who he had shepherded in their faith in Jesus. He prays for them every day. Their, their numbers are seeming to dwindle every day. How are they doing with the pressures and pulls of living in an empire that was becoming increasingly hostile to Christians? How are they doing as the images of the splendor and the grandeur and the power of the empire are always in front of them? 30 years earlier, in AD 67, life had become very difficult for followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire. The Roman Emperor Nero was feeding Christians to the lions for sport. It was around that time that the two men who had been the visible point leaders for the Christian movement in front of John were killed, martyred. Peter, apostle to the Jews, was probably crucified. And Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, was taken as well. That was bad enough. But four years ago, in AD 92, the fire got even hotter. The emperor is now Domitian, a profoundly insecure man who lived in constant morbid fear of being overthrown. In his insecurity, Domitian demanded that all of his subjects throughout the empire worship him as Lord and God. Until now, Christians could, for the most part, just not say anything and be overlooked. But now, a line has been drawn. Everyone was required to go to an emperor worship site, a temple or an altar, take a pinch of incense, cast it on the altar, and say the words, Caesar is Lord. That's all. Just a ritual. Just say the words. But John can't do it. Respect Caesar? Yes. Pay taxes to Caesar? Yes. But worship Caesar? No. And so John graciously but firmly refuses to take the pinch of incense and cast it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. 
Why John wasn't killed, we don't know. They could easily have killed John on the spot. They killed about 40,000 followers of Jesus during this time. Was it that they took pity on this kind old man? Was it that although technically his refusal to bow to Caesar made him a threat to the national security, to the unity of the empire? They see this aged man as powerless and clueless and harmless, and so they let him live. Or was it that God intervened and preserved him? If you consider permanent banishment to Patmos preservation, allowing him to waste away, isolated and alone, no family or friends to care for him. The only thing John sees as he wakes up every day, the only thing he experiences as he goes through each day are signs of his hopelessness. The machine of the Roman Empire ascending and crushing to a pulp everything that resisted it. And the wheels of the Jesus movement, from what John can see, grinding to a halt and going downhill. And yet, although John never leaves Patmos, he dies there alone. It is in Patmos that Jesus comes to John and helps him to see further than he had ever seen even when Jesus was physically walking by his side, to see more than he had ever seen even after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came over him and he became one of the leaders of the Jesus movement, to see before anyone else saw it something that put the experiences he encountered every day in a context that made him see even his isolation, his abandonment, his oppression, not with hopelessness, but with hope. So what's your Patmos? In some way, the situation that we're in has put every single one of us on Patmos in some way. Or it's threatening to. And we're trying hard to be optimistic. And in our optimism, we say things like, well, you know, we're all in the same boat. I really don't like that line. But I've sort of kept my mouth shut about it. And this week, I think it was Rick Warren who said it. No, we're not all in the same boat. We're all in the same storm, but we're all in different boats. And some of us in big ships, which may get a bit of damage, but will come out okay. Some of us are in dinghies, which are in no way prepared for the storm. But all of us are experiencing some personal effects from being on Patmos, some more than others. And the real question is, what's your Patmos making you feel? Alone? Isolated from everything you counted on to keep you going? To keep you strong and stable? Disoriented is a word that I've heard and I've used. Which leads to frustration. Irritation. Impatience. Bust out of it anger. Despair, which leads to panic. It's on Patmos that John is given. What? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation simply means unveiling, uncovering, opening the window on a behind-the-scenes reality. Now, in, in the very first phrase of the book, that tells us something about how we need to read this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, it's much how we need to read it, but also how we need not to read it. It's an opening up 
an unveiling, not a hiding, not an obscuring. This book is not a puzzle book to be decoded. It is a picture book to be seen. God does not give us these visions to confuse John or us, to put what is happening and will happen behind a veil, but to unveil, to help us see. There are approaches to the book of Revelation which take these images and pictures and want to decode them. And some people call this the National National Enquirer approach to the book, trying to identify who in our current world might be some of these figures that appear in the book. That's not how we'll be reading this book, okay? The questions we need to ask are not who might this bad guy be or when might this event be happening, but how does this vision invite me to see Jesus? How does the truth of this passage point me to the Jesus that I need today? The word revelation, unveiling, is is actually the word apocalypse, which also came to have the meaning of breaking through, breaking into, in this case, a breaking into our reality of a bigger reality, the real big picture. You see, this unveiling helps us to see that there, there are actually three real worlds. The one real world, which we tend to call the real world, is what we might call the world of the streets. It's the world that comes at us, the the realities we can see, feel, and comprehend with our five senses. For John, this world was Patmos. But as modern psychology and particularly popularized psychology tells us, there's another very real world. It's the world between our ears. It's what we're talking about when we say, this is my reality, and my reality is a very subjective thing. It's, it's my interpretation, which for me is the real interpretation of the world of the streets. But what this apocalypse book, this unveiling book gives to us, what it gave to John is a picture of another world, another very real world, the heavenlies or, or the kingdom of God that is above The kingdom of the one, as we saw from the book of Daniel several years ago, the kingdom of the one who is right now in control of the one we think is in control or tries to control. The world of the streets and the world between our ears. And it's Jesus that bridges those worlds. He is the one who has always been in the realm of the heavenlies, who has come into the world of the streets. Hey, he created it. And he entered his creation to deal with everything and to give us the opportunity to allow him to take charge of the world between our ears, to live from the reality of the heavenlies into the Patmos of our life. And so in this revelation of Jesus Christ, we are given two things. Again, these are from Daryl Johnson, his book, Discipleship on the Edge. This book, this apocalypse, this unveiling helps us to do two things. It helps us to see the present In light of the unseen realities of the future. Because if we can see what the future holds, it helps us to make wise decision in the present. And have healthy perspectives on the now. But it also helps us to see the present, the real world of the streets, our Patmos, in light of the invisible realities of the present. It pulls back the curtain on the here and now. So we can see what's really going on. How often have you tried to help a friend who's panicking, angry, 
irritated, insulted, and, and after listening for what you think is an appropriate amount of time, and then listening some more, what you finally say in as calm and, and suggestive a tone of voice as you can, you know, sometimes things are not quite the way they seem. The book of Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus, helps remind us that no matter how things are, they are not only as they seem. Now, we all know that, don't we? We, we all know that things are not only as they seem, but, but we have a hard time seeing that in the world in our heads about the world of the street, right? And sometimes we actually use that fact to mess with people just a little bit. When our son was 14 months old, we took a family tr camping trip with LaDonna's parents and her brother and his fiance, and we were going to her other brother's wedding in, actually in Edmonton, and we camped several days in Wells Gray Park in interior of BC. And one afternoon, LaDonna's brother and I took our son on a walk up a trail and past this beautiful waterfall, and I said, hey, let's take a picture of Mike on the edge of that cliff in front of the waterfall. And we did. There's nothing fake or Photoshop, no green screen. This was in the old days of film cameras. That's real. But I didn't tell LaDonna about it, and when we developed the picture several weeks later, LaDonna saw the picture. Well, let's just say it produced the desired effect. I had to calm her down, pull her off the ceiling, and say to her, I, I, I know how it looks, but, but things are not only as they seem. You see, what is not visible is that the cliff on which she is sitting is actually a ledge behind which, about another five feet down, is another ledge on which your brother is sitting with his hand on Mike's back. He is safe. He is secure. Folks, that's the hope we see in this unveiling. It's more than looking at the world of my streets with optimism, with wishful thinking, believing that it will all turn out all right and closing our eyes to the bad things. The, the hope that has the name Jesus is the hope that sees all reality, a bigger reality than Patmos, the COVID-19, and however it will affect us. Do you know the hope whose name is Jesus? Are you his? And, and so the introduction continues in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Seven literal world of the streets churches. We'll look at those churches in two weeks. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, or actually the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does this add to what and how we will see when we see that the name of hope is Jesus? Well, it helps us to see that hope is not just something Jesus wants to give us. Hope is who he is. Because of what he has already done in the world of the streets, all I need, to, all I need is him. What, what is it that we sometimes pray? Lord, give me some hope. You ever prayed that? When I really see who he is, what he has done, I pray a different prayer. I say, Lord, help me to see, even in this, 
in light of who you really are and what you have done. That I have hope. Who is Jesus? Jesus was and is and always be, will be God. From the Father, from the Spirit, and the Son. I wish we had time to unpack those phrases. There's some powerful stuff in there, but we don't. Who is Jesus? He expands on that with another triplet. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He is, I'm sorry, back up a step here. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the the faithful witness, the one who showed us that God really is real, who obeyed God faithfully and fully even to death. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's already conquered the ultimate enemy that can defeat us. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who is in control for me of whoever it is that's trying to make us think they are in control. And what is it that Jesus has done? How is it that he is the one who is our hope? He has loved us, has freed us from our sins by his blood. Everything I have achieved and accumulated that I'm afraid I'm going to lose, that I wonder if I'll ever get back, The things we always worry about are really nothing in the big picture. Because he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God God and Father. To him be the power and glory forever. Nobody, nothing can take away who you really are in Jesus when you realize that hope is who Jesus is and has already given you. You know, one of the questions we ask at a time like this is, Is God judging us? Is God mad at us? We're going to talk about judgment as we get toward the end of this book, but I think I can safely say that perhaps the answer to those questions is those are the wrong questions. Perhaps a better question might be what is God wanting us to know and realize during this time? If God is sending this or even allowing this, which he obviously is, what is he wanting us to know, to think about, and to do about it? I love the answer Max Lucado gave to that question recently. God's not angry. God's not cutting us off. But he's saying your priorities are misplaced. You're worshiping entertainment and you're worshiping savings accounts. That's the one that hit me. And I think what God is saying is, says Lucado, I love you, but you're going to the wrong place for your fulfillment and satisfaction. You're putting too much hope in things that will ultimately not deliver. I think God is inviting us to consider, can you see that the hope you need, the hope you are really looking for, all the hope you need is Jesus? And what will happen when I realize that hope has a name? And the name is Jesus. I will see a bigger reality than the one I can just touch and see that's in my face. I will see that because of who he is and what he has done, that hope is not just something he gives. It's something he is for me and in me. And there's one more thing. It's what the book of Revelation will ultimately take us toward. 
verses 7 and 8 in our introduction. Look, look, it's the first time that we are given that command in the book. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, who is to come, the Almighty. How's it going to turn out? Jesus is coming again. You see, all of our questions become minor when we know how it will all turn out in the end. But to see what he's really saying in this, we need to look a little closer at how he puts it. This first look in the book. Look, it says, he is coming. John does not say he will come. John says he is coming. I, I grew up on a 10-acre property in the, a rural area. I was the oldest of six siblings, and our house was close to the back of the property with this long and somewhat winding driveway. We could see right to the end of the driveway to the road it connected to. And there were times... Seems to me like it was every day, but it was probably only occasionally when, when mom was busily getting, getting supper ready for everyone so that we could eat right when dad came home from work, which was usually around six o'clock. And at some point she would say to us, I want all of the stuff you've been playing with and working off with off, off the floor and put away by the time dad gets home. Yes, mom. And we wouldn't do anything. It didn't mean too much to us. And sometimes she'd say, now, do it now. And we'd slowly get at it but over time we learn to station someone usually the youngest sister at the living room window and when dad turned onto the driveway off the dirt road she'd say he's coming and we hurry and get into action that's what john is saying here look he's coming when i see that hope has a name I can see him already on his way. You see, each of the chapters of Jesus' life is really only completely understood in light of the last chapter. The purpose of Jesus' birth is incomplete without his teaching and healing ministry. The purpose of Jesus' teaching, healing, and ministry is, is incomplete without the death on the cross. The purpose of his death on the cross is incomplete without his resurrection from the grave. The purpose of his resurrection from the grave is incomplete without his ascension to the right hand of the throne of the Father. And the purpose of his ascension to the throne of the Father is incomplete without his pouring out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And the purpose of his pouring out of the Holy Spirit is incomplete without seeing him coming again in glory and because we know all of those other chapters of Jesus' life have happened, we know that he is on his way. One of my favorite stories, you've heard it before, is a story about the little boy in springtime who was walking down the street and he was watching his favorite community baseball team play. And he's standing there and cheering and, and this team is just getting walloped by the other teams. The first inning. And the other team is just hitting him out there, hitting him out there, and then a home run, and just scoring 11-0, 15-0, 18-0. And this boy is just cheering 
happily and wildly at his team. Go get him, guys. Go get him. An older gentleman who's walking by watches this scene and watches this and likes what he sees. And then he says to the boy, how can you be so cheerful? Your team is losing like crazy. And he looks at this man and he says, you just wait till my team gets up to bat. He is coming. Are you ready? We'll be moving to a time in which we participate in the ceremony Jesus gave us to participate in, to remember what he has done in the world of the streets, to bring us into the world of the heavenlies, his eternal kingdom. In one sense, we could see this in light of this passage as, as a toast to Jesus, really, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom the one who rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. As we get ready for that, and listen to the song about our hope in Jesus, will you ask yourself three questions? Number one, have I accepted that transfer that Jesus made possible in his death from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that is forever. Have you accepted that? Have you said yes to Jesus? Number two, in what way do I need to declare, declare to my heart today that Jesus really is the only hope I need? And number three, what would I do? How would I think this week? What would I say if I really believed that hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And hope is not something he gives. It's who he is for me every single day. Am I living as if hope has a name? As if all my hope, all of it, is in Jesus'